Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hi there. I wanted to let you know that what you're about to listen to is part two of my conversation with our guest. And I really encourage you to listen to part one in addition to. It can be in a different order, but make sure that you get the whole conversation. The conversation was so rich that we needed to split it up into two episodes. So take a listen, make sure you catch the first part and enjoy. Um, Before I get into having you talk about the framework that you introduce in your book, um, I want to say thank you. I've said this to you personally, but I'm going to say it here on the podcast for so many of your extremely needed and timely on-point LinkedIn posts when social justice issues, especially crisis situations, have occurred. You've really shown up to help guide people through how to language some of these issues. Uh, Two stood out for me. One is when the Ukraine war broke out, and then also January 6th. Can you talk about what you said about January 6th? What were you seeing out there of how it was being framed, of what was happening there? And you make a significant point that everyone, I really hope you take away from this conversation, is this idea of being of watching out for softening language and the harm that can be caused from softening language, especially from us as communicators and how we coach our leaders if they're going to make a statement externally or even internally. So if you can kind of remind folks of what did you say around January 6th? What were you responding to? And what was your point around softening language? So I started with a Twitter thread on January 6th, right? I didn't like, I didn't wait. I I started with a Twitter thread and I'm like, oh, this is bad. Like we have to stop saying these things. And then there was a little bit of uptick, but there was chaos. And I haven't worked to develop a Twitter following because it's going to be such an unsafe place for people who are women and I don't look particularly white. So I'm like, eh, you know, I'm going to leave it. But LinkedIn is a much better platform for me. So on January 7th, I took that Twitter thread, fleshed it out a little and put it out there. And it got well over a million views, right? Well over a million people read it. And speaking of not arguing with people, there were some people in the comments who wrote things and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going to waste my time talking to you. Right. So I had earlier that year, no, that's earlier that year didn't exist. So the previous (laughs) year I had worked for uh, a national news organization that really wanted to debias their journalistic language. And Mm. so I had set up some frameworks for them on how to report things. And I said, you're going to, you're going to get pushed to replicate dominant frameworks and use language that protects people in power. I was like, the police PR person is going to give you a spin where the police have done no wrong. And the the person who got shot by them is to blame. 
and is a criminal and is dangerous and whatever. I'm like, and you're going to have government officials that are going to this, that. So I was giving, helping them unpack. So for me, I had just been educating about this. So it was very clear to me that reporters were coming in, white reporters, white middle-class and upper reporters were coming in and seeing people gathering in front of the Capitol and finding the commonalities and humanizing and empathizing with people and saying things like protest, protesters and Trump supporters were three things like, oh, you like dogs? Literally our conversations with armed insurrectionists. This is not an exaggeration, right? I'm not, I'm not using hyperbole. I mean, literal armed insurrectionists out to do damage, out to do unlawful things, including unlawful takeover of the government. And people were using language that humanized them, presented things from their perspective and was softening language. So now let me define softening language, which is softening language is language that presents problematic behavior as reasonable, right? Mm. So it's language. Say it again. Think Say it a, again. <laughs> all right. So if you think of a threshold, so here's the dividing line and above it is problematic behavior and below it is acceptable and reasonable behavior. Softening language actively moves behavior that is very clearly in the problematic zone and pushes it under the threshold of acceptability into the acceptable, reasonable zone where it doesn't make sense to do anything about it. It doesn't make sense. Why are you pushing back? Why are you calling me out? Why are you saying these things? Why are you saying this is unacceptable? So yeah, so this is the term that I've used for it. I talk about it. So that that post went viral because people felt, I think, very comforted. You feel gaslit, right? Right. Oh, so yeah. in therapeutic psychology, it's called invalidation and disconfirmation, right? So you can see things with your own eyes and you're experiencing them yourself. And you're like, and then somebody says, that's not how it was. This is how it was. It wasn't bad. It was like this, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think collectively as a country, because most of us are not nearly as polarized as people like to make out. There's a very vocal minority, but a lot of people want rule of law and transparency and order and all of the like, government that funds things that we need, you know, like just want things. And um, it felt like, like journalism, which is supposed to be reporting things as they are, Fact was yep. hook, line and sinker buying into this framing that is so clearly wrong. And so I think that's why, I think that's why it resonated with people so much. Do you want to hear how it plays out in the workplace? Cause it's the same pattern. Absolutely. And before you get into that, I'll say that I've run into issues with people saying, well, my leader doesn't want to say the murder of George Floyd. They want to say the death or that he died. And so it was a similar kind of reality check where there was this kind of, you know, helplessness that was invited by putting it into the appropriate or reasonable area, uh, rather by softening the language, rather than we have to deal with this harsh reality that, that this man was murdered by a policeman. You know, it's like, it's hard for us to just, for some of us, not all of us, right? There's communities that live this every single day. And then there's communities that I'm a part of that doesn't, right? And so there's this calculation that our heads go through for some of our demographics that it doesn't compute. And so it's hard for us to call a thing a thing 
sometimes. So I just wanted to add that example. Yes, please give us some uh, in the workplace. But let me go back and say also, there was this after George Floyd, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was a TV critic did this very good interrogation of so many shows have been cop shows that you end up sympathizing with, empathizing with, humanizing the police and seeing everything from their perspective. But then he goes through and this terrible thing happens in the show and this one, and then they just go off stage, right? So for communities who live it, that's the main story for them. I got paralyzed by a cop who shot me for no reason, right? But, you know, for the cops, it's like, oh, my agony, I shot someone and I probably shouldn't have, I guess I have to go to therapy, right? So whose perspective Who's humanized? Who do we get to really see as a full-fledged human being? Okay, even before I go to the workplace, I want to say that another area I see this in, and this goes right back to the 90s when I was putting together these conferences and editing these volumes, people for decades have been doing work on courtroom language and reporting of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And how frequently, they weren't calling it softening language, but they're showing all these mechanisms. And so people end up with acquittals, or a slap on the wrist, because the framing is so frequently, even in the Brock Turner case, why should his life be ruined for 20 minutes of fun, said, oh, I think, his oh. dad. And, and this is like how it goes through. So there's this way in which, um, so as I was writing the book, or not long before I wrote the book, Mary Kay Letourneau died. And so for your viewers and listeners who are international, this is a, a woman in the U.S. who was a teacher. And headlines when she died, she was a very pretty young woman in her mid-30s, but looked much younger, thin, white, blonde woman, um, very attractive. And she, it was, so headlines today said things like, Mary Kay Letourneau, um, teacher who was jailed for an inappropriate relationship with her student dies, right? Inappropriate relationship with her student. So in my book, I unpack what that is. And I'm like, uh, it's rape. Like it's lit. And you, you may think, oh, maybe like he's a manly 17 year old. He was 12 years old. He was 12 years old. Children cannot consent to sex with adults. You don't, there's no other language. She went to jail on felony counts of rape. So a headline should say, like, if you read that softening language or that, that, that language that hides things, let's talk about the softening for, I have a section of my book on invisible lesbians. I was talking about this with a friend of mine who grew up in a more conservative household. She said she was in her 30s when she realized her aunt's roommate was her basically wife because it was always her aunt's friend, the softening language. Like the reality is they're in a romantic relationship that is just as valid as all the heterosexual relationships in our family, but we're softening it to something else, right? To, to mask it, to hide it. In the workplace, sexual harassment and sexual, well, sexual harassment, and also comments that I'm just going to say here because I think we're in group. Everyone who cares enough to listen to this already, I think, is bought in. So racist comments, sexist comments, homophobic comments. These things are quite frequent in the workplace. And I consult with employment lawyers and I run continuing legal education courses on bias for lawyers, right? So I'm, I'm soaking in this stuff will often get dismissed by managers and HR, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody comes and reports and says, huh, I've been keeping a list. Here are things that my teammates are saying. And, uh, or, or also people with perceptible disabilities. My goodness, do people feel very entitled to ask the most intrusive questions, including about their sex lives, 
But like mm-hmm. the most intrusive questions, I'm like, that can't be happening. Here's my, I'm not perceptibly disabled, right? So I don't get those kinds of questions. I get a lot of short jokes because I'm very short. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but um, I'm not short enough for it to be a problem beyond reaching things in a market, you know. But people are saying things that I'm like, this is so egregious. And it was said to you this year. So what happens is very consistently, people with power are protecting people with power by using softening language. And let me talk about power because there's two kinds of power. And I've had some autistic workshop attendees be like, I don't see power the way other people do. Can you unpack this for me? So let me do that for autistic viewers and listeners. Power can be institutional, like you're a high-ranked person in the org chart, or you have power over people who report to you. So like a manager, a director, a vice president, a CEO. But power also comes from dominant group membership for social power. So how many, the more dominant groups you belong to, the more social power you have. So in that Brock Turner case, Brock Turner was a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, presumably, man who was an athlete at an elite college, right? So that's seven. I just counted off seven elite high status groups that he was a member of. Yeah, so there's What's that? He's able-bodied, so that's eight. And able-bodied, yes, thank you. And able-bodied. So, and, and conventionally attractive, right? So all of these things. So suddenly all the perspective taking of the white, cisgendered, heterosexual male judge, all of that affinity bias, all that perspective taking goes to him and protecting him and wanting to see the good in him because we come from this starting point that white people are inherently good or that male people are inherently good. So you hear softening language like after very egregious things, well, he's a good guy or, oh, boys will be boys or he's just Mm -hmm. showing his admiration for you. Those are like sexual harassment things. Or um, they're just curious, or they're so young, or they don't know better. You should educate them. And it's like, we're the same age, right? People come to me. I run these interviews, right? Let me explain in part. My data comes in part from data that's available to everybody through the internet, or I see the headlines you do, or I follow a lot of people on social media who aren't members of my group, so I can get insight to those Me groups. too, yeah. But people... People, I run these employee experience interviews, which don't have leading questions at all. So instead of saying, have you ever experienced bias at work? I'm like, has there ever been a time that you felt like people were marking you lower than your actual status? And then the stories come spilling up. Was there ever a time that you felt you were central, but someone seemed to be pushing you to the outside, right? You know, has there ever been a time that you you tried to say something and you felt like it was ignored? Well, guess what? People from these non-dominant groups, these stories spill out of them. And so, so many people report that there's insult to injury. Injury is their colleagues say bad things to them, problematic language. Insult is they report it to a manager or an HR person and say, here's a problem. And they're told it's not a problem by using softening language. So that's a thing to be, again, the gaslighting, that disconfirmation and invalidation where you're like, this feels bad to me. This feels like a problem. And then somebody with power says to you, that's not a problem. And why then, and then insult to insult to injury or injury on top of injury. Why are you playing the race card? Why are you being so emotional? Oh, women are so hysterical. You're always playing the gender card. This is just how it is in a workplace. You need to toughen up. Why are you always the victim, right? 
So it's this, so I had to come up with softening language and inflating language, which we don't really have time to talk about, to talk about what's the bias that happens when we talk about bias, right? It's like a layer upon layer. It's one thing when the bias happens, then people try to say, oh, this bias thing is happening. We should talk about it. And then they're shut down by being told that they're the problem and that what they're saying is a problem isn't actually a problem. It's this one-two punch of softening language and inflating language. No, you're the problem. And so guess what? People leave. And that's why you see so many, for example, Black women starting up their own firms. I love to start up my own firm. I'm like, I'm not dealing with this. I love to start up my own firm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. When I worked at GoDaddy, um, that was research that we had done of who is starting up new businesses. And it's educated, overeducated almost. It's such additional degrees of education. Um, Black women. They're the ones starting up their own businesses because they're not, they're not going to be in the, in the corporate, you know, especially the corporate atmosphere, uh, anymore. So, and who can blame, you know, blame them. And I love partnering with them and, you know, <laughs> in this work because they're out doing their own thing as well. And so we can come together and joint ventures. So I would love for you to introduce the framework that you introduce in your book, the inclusive language. Field guide, great title, and thank you. Uh, and and talk to us through a lens of of this framework applying to people who are in corporate communications, internal communications, marketing, brands, and how we need to apply this framework to our work on a, a regular basis. So this book so specifically has corporate comms in its uh, targets, right? Because of my clients who were like, oh my God, like you have to help me. Um, not only does the framework, is the framework designed to help corporate comms, I designed a whole checklist that you can use that's in the back of the book in the resources section that you can use to create your own checklist. So I created a checklist template, which is kind of a weird mouthful, but I'm like, you go through, I'm like, I'm going to hold your hand through this whole process. And I go through all the relevant dimensions of human identity that corporate comms people need to be thinking about. And the checklist, did I really include this? Did I include this? Did I make sure this happened? So just for corporate comms people, I, I got you on this. I got <laughs> Excellent. you. Like, it's in the back of the book. Yeah. But the framework is because people kept on coming to me and saying, there's this list, but then I don't know how to memorize it. And this one feels like it's already out of date. And then, but I'm in group, so can I use this word? And then how do I apply it to this category? Like, okay, this is about race, but now I'm confused about disability. And so what I realized is that using identity as a starting point for inclusive language was self-defeating. Even though identity is a core component of what needs to be kept in mind as you're using an inclusion lens for your comms. Identity is key. But I actually learned that it shouldn't be the starting point. So using my toolkit of linguistic anthropology, I went and I looked back on literally 25 years from when I was a wee little grad student, 25 years of research and data dating back to classes I TA'd in the 90s to courses that I would teach and how things would land with undergrads and what would they write to me seven years later that they still remembered and thinking about all the different languages that I had researched and places I'd lived, all the access to other cultures and languages that I'd gotten from anthropology conferences, anthropology books, et cetera. 
And I created a framework that's granular and based on behaviors, behaviors that are meant to be universal. So my book, my publisher said, can you please focus it on American English? I was like, meh, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. But the book isn't only, and I have a little apology in there. I'm like, hi, if you're reading this and you're not in the US, you're going to have to do some translation work. I'm sorry. Like, let me acknowledge American English is not the world. US is not everywhere, right? But it is designed to be cross-linguistically and cross-culturally valid. So inclusive language actually boils down to inclusive behavior that involves language, right? So I've talked about my first principle is reflect reality, which P.S. means you're often coming in sounding a lot harsher than you think a lot of people who don't understand inclusive language are like, oh, you got to soften it. It's got to be roses and teddy bears. And I don't even know what soft things are, but you know what I mean. And I'm like, no, say rape, say police murder, say, you know, I'm like, say the thing. So for me, reflect reality is my most important one because it undergirds everything. And it's saying reality is being masked now. And the more we can actually reflect what the reality is, not just for people with power, but for all kinds of people, the better it's going to be. And then from that, the next most important one is show respect, which I think should be pretty obvious. Correlated with show respect is draw people in, principle three. So they're the same thing. Make sure you're marking people at the right level, be respectful of them, not demeaning, and draw people in. Stop pushing people out and marginalizing them. Then we have incorporate other perspectives, which ties into reflect reality, but is important enough to be its own thing. How many perspectives am I including in this piece of communication? Is there something that I'm forgetting that would make this inappropriate? Um, Remind me that I want to talk about the H&M hoodie at the end of this. I don't know if you remember it. Yes. Then my last two are number five, prevent erasure, because there are so many people, kinds of people and kinds of experiences that have just been erased. In the book, one of the examples I give is indigenous history um, is erased in so many ways. First off, when was this town founded? It was founded in 1858. No, people have lived here for tens of thousands of years. Like, no, like, like, no, like a, just no. B, I see all the time, the natives used to, the lo- the natives, maybe they'll say the local natives used to. I'm like, uh, they have specific nation names and we've got cultural language, history differences. You don't just say the natives to mean so many different groups of people, you know? So there are all these ways that erasure happens. And I'm like, you know, and then all, and then the third part of erasure for natives is people act like they're all gone, you know? So I used to do volunteer work up the road at Berkeley with people, for example, Ohlone's from Santa Cruz, I remember some, and from with California natives from all over the state who would come in and they would tell me so many stories. And people are like, they're like, wait, you're not all dead? You're, you live here? And people are like, yeah, like my, my people have been here a long time. Like, yeah, like I, I, I was here and I am here. So these kinds of erasure are deeply painful, but also create very bad mental models. Like they give us such biased mental models because how are you going to make good judgments if the data, the communications data that's been put in your head, what's been communicated to you through media, what's that telling you? And then my last one is recognize pain points, which ties in very well with your book. Because what we're both talking about is, let me give you an example. 
I gave a workshop at a very techie tech company, like techie tech, right? And there were two black people there. One of them brought me in and the other was sitting at a table in the front. And then the room was full with, oh, and one of them was my co-host, my, my co-facilitator. So three black people. So a stakeholder, a person who actually showed up because he, he worked there in HR and then, uh, and then my, my co-facilitator. And one of the things we talked about was how problematic the use of articulate can be when applied as a supposed complement to black people. And I, right. I break this down in my book. I'm not going to go into details, but we had them discussing articulate. And so a table of all white male engineers was very frustrated, maybe kind of angry. And they said, we had to Google this. How in the world are we supposed to know that this is a problem? We don't have any black people on our team. We don't have black people in our neighborhoods. We don't have black people who we're friends with. How are we supposed to know? They said angrily. And so it was so hard for us. You know, like we exchanged a look, me and my black co-facilitator, right? And I'm like, ah, oh. I'm like, isn't this pointing out that, that, see, inclusive language and inclusive comms are a series of trap doors that you keep on going down to the ground truth, which is that it's not good that you have no black teammates, coworkers, bosses, neighbors, friends. And so even though you don't, isn't it your responsibility to know about this stuff? Is, is the fact that your life is a product of systemic racism and ways that people have been denied opportunities and so many points of their life, is that a reason for you to just sit there comfortably? So I think of it, I don't love that movie, but I think he's a little heavy handed, um, that nice Korean director who did Snowpiercer. But Snowpiercer is a, a train-based version of that, where different railroad cars have cars have people with different levels of comfort, effort, good treatment, negative treatment experiences, and there are a bunch of people who are living a very comfortable, luxurious, happy life because they are being served by people who are in utmost misery, right? And so again, it's heavy-handed, but um, but it's also a, a very reasonable allegory. Mm hmm. All right. So I'm going to remind you about the H&M hoodie uh, example. And then I'm going to give you our last couple of questions to round up. This has been an incredible conversation. And hopefully it really guides people into giving them confidence uh, to say, you know, you know, whenever they have the pushback, or it gives them more of a depth of an understanding and a scientific base for the purpose for inclusive language. And so I'm so grateful for your time and, and expertise and this book that you're giving. So tell us about the H&M hoodie, and then I'll follow up with a couple of closing con uh, questions. So H&M, pre-pandemic, way pre-pandemic, eight years ago-ish, put out a hoodie for children that said, cutest monkey in the jungle. Mm -hmm. And then they pictured a young black boy wearing it. I remember that. And so this is incorporate other perspectives and recognize pain points in a so I looked at that when I look at that and other marketing fails that bring down the wrath of the internet, I'm like, buy buy my book, that you could avoid this. I mean, I didn't have a book at the time. Um I don't think that nobody knew that this was a problem. And P.S., this was in Sweden where there's not that many black people. So I'm kind of like, I think someone may have been a bad faith actor in that. But 
part of inclusive language and, and part of the stuff that you're talking about in your book as well is having the safety and these guidelines and this framework to have a discussion. There's no way people didn't know that that was a problem, but I'm sure because fashion can be so hierarchical and so racist based on stories friends of mine who work for luxury brands have told me. I'm sure that there are people in that room who were like, this should not happen, but they didn't feel safe enough to talk about it. And there wasn't a pre-established framework. Let's make sure we're doing these things that they had a checklist that would never have happened. So that's the H&M hoodie. When you don't follow principles of inclusive language, your brand can take a hit. Your stock prices can go down. You can lose clients. You can get, I know they say all press is good press, but eh, not all press is good press. I think there was a rapper who was going to do a collaboration with them and he dropped out, right? So like, that's just a few words, but it was done badly and it uh, violated several principles of inclusive language and they really paid a price for a time. I'm sure H&M is doing fine now. And, and you and I have talked about this, that there is such a complementary package between your book that's coming out and what our book is about, The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Shit. And so, you know, so it, if you're in, in communications, marketing, brand, content creation, these are the two books that you bring together as part of your package. If you're listening to this pre-October 3rd, 2023, uh, Suzanne's book is available for pre-order. If you are available, if, if you're listening to this post October 3rd, 2023, then you can get it anywhere, uh, you buy your books, support your local independent bookstores as well. So Suzanne, I've got this question that I like to ask everybody and I'm super curious of what your, um, response is going to be. What does it sound like to communicate like you give a damn? I mean, from this perspective, it really is the whole purpose of my book is follow the principles of inclusive language. And so the secret behind following the principles of inclusive language, which I just laid out, there's only six of them. I think they're very logical. I think they're very intuitive. They're very straightforward. I've run them by people. They're like, yeah, sure. No problem. The secret behind it is that you got to put in some effort. Right. So your book and my book work together because they lay out specifically what effort is required for people to do. Like, like sometimes people get called out and they hear do the work and then they're like, but what? I, I don't I don't know what to do. Like a lot of people and like, is it the Internet's job to educate everybody? No. I'm like, OK, it'll be my job. You were like, OK, it'll be our job. Right. We'll we'll educate you. So doing the work means. Like that example I just gave you with those with those white men who were like, I don't know, black people, how am I supposed to know this? Well, figure out what your areas are where you've been not given enough information and start getting that information. So in the book, I have, um, by the way, I have um, exercises. So I've got those six principles. And what I say in the book is um, you wouldn't read a book about French. If you don't speak French, you wouldn't spend three hours reading a book on French, close it and be like, all right, I speak French now. <laughs> we know that to acquire a foreign language, you have to practice and it's incremental change and in practice over time. P.S. Inclusive language skills are very similar to foreign language skills. You're moving into a different space, acquiring new habits, sometimes new syntax with pronouns, right? You're going to use things syntactically different than you did before. And so how can you do that? The answer is 
through practice. And so at the end of each principle chapter, I give five quick wins that people can start implementing right away. Stop saying master bathroom and start saying primary bathroom or main bathroom. Stop saying oriental. Here's what you can use instead, right? So those are some quick wins. But then there are other things that take more time to build up. The idea is that if you build up the habits, then when the thing happens, when the crisis happens, mm-hmm. you've been talking about having the integrity, being deliberate, having things already figured out. For me, it's the crisis happens. You don't have to learn from scratch right. everything about that group because you're like, I already know about issues facing transgender people. That's right. I already know about issues facing undocumented immigrants. That's right. I already know about gender bias at work because you've been putting in the work. So to me, giving a damn means incorporating this into honestly your daily habits. There's some things I'm like, spend five minutes a day doing this kind of cleanup. I would say as advice, one of the top things I would recommend is diversifying your social media. So a lot of people through affinity bias just have very straight and narrow social media, but it's the most fantastic way, as you know, to eavesdrop on conversations and learn without draining people. So, so many people from marginalized groups are asked to do like emotional labor and intellectual labor. Teach me, but don't make me mad is this terrible conundrum that so many people have. And they're like, but I'm tired. I talk about this in my ally skills workshop that I'm about to give to a big tech client at 7am tomorrow. (laughs) But I'm like, you know, like you gotta, gotta, you gotta know your, you gotta know your stuff. Don't ask people who have been injured to educate you on how they were injured. Please tend to them and educate yourself on the injury and how to prevent that. Don't, don't make the injured person be the educator on here's not to have not, not to not to injure me again. And P.S. Don't get mad at me as I tell you about it. So, yeah, that's set up to fail. So, you know, a big part of everything that you've been talking about is one of the things that I share all the time on this podcast, which is language leads to behavior. Straight forward, very clear power of language, power structures, the importance of the power of language and how we're using it. and being really knowledgeable on inclusive language, make sure to get your book, The Inclusive Language Field Guide, coming out October 3rd, 2023. How can people follow you and continue to learn from you? So the two main ways that people like are to follow me on LinkedIn. So we've talked about my LinkedIn posts. I have posts that go viral about every two months because what I do is when I see people talking about a thing, oh, ChatGPT is causing these problems, or oh, Kristen Bell's dinner party was kind of white, or I go, or why was this one black player reamed for making the same gesture that the white player made, but why are we only? So what I do is I, those are just three that went viral in the last, whatever, six months. Um, I take uh, topical things and I apply these frameworks that I've worked out to them. So they become very clear. And I think people can see the patterns in a way. So they feel more grounded and calm down. So mm-hmm. follow me on LinkedIn is the number one. And then number two is sign up for my newsletter, which comes out twice a month. Once a month, I give away a free article that analyzes something topical. So the most recent one was about cisgender. Why does cis sound and feel weird as a, as a prefix? But why should we use it anyway? And I went through the linguistic reasons why and compared it to an acoustic guitar and an analog watch. And then people are like, oh, oh. okay. <laughs> 
And they're like, oh, then that makes sense. Like acoustic guitar sounded weird when we started it. And now it's perfectly reasonable. And then once a month, I send out an advice column where readers email me questions that get anonymized. And they're like, I got a question. I'm like, I'll answer it for free. So you get free tips and advice. You can go to my website, which is SuzanneWertheim.com. And there is a sign up right there. Don't sell information. We have a very long privacy policy. Literally all we do is email out twice a month. Yeah, you're pretty safe whenever you share your email with anyone in diversity, equity, and inclusion. (laughs) We're going to be very protective of your privacy for sure. And we'll put all of this in the show notes as well uh, to make sure that people have access uh, to your information, everything that you just shared. What a pleasure. What an honor to have you. I mean, you are like the perfect guest for Communicate Like You Give a Damn. Thank you for the generosity that you share on a regular basis through your newsletters and your your Q&A sessions and now this book. Congratulations on the book. And I can't wait since I've got a sneak peek of it. I can tell you as communicators and content creators, you got to have this book, get it with the conscious communicator, and you've got all the package that you need to apply to be the inclusive communicator that you see yourself to be. You have everything that you need and you have a couple of people right here that have your backs. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. Been my pleasure. Genuinely. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.